Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with my inevitable co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. <laughs> inevitable. I like that. Hey, Sean. Uh, how are you doing, my friend? I, I've been called inevitable before, and I took it as a compliment uh, because what else am I going to do? So right. it is a Safest. compliment in this case as well. well I'm going to go with that as well. That's That's the only way I want to take it. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's it was a weekend. It, it was a weekend, and we have inevitably news uh, in the D and D world to cover. So we will do that, and we will start with the coming soon release of Critical Role: Call of the Netherdeep. As of this recording, it is about a week away when the book will arrive in the United States uh, on March fifteenth. It will release April fifteenth in the uh, European Union and elsewhere. The book is a campaign set in the world of the uh, critical role called Exandria. It is for levels, characters of level three to 12, taking them across the continents of Exandria, including the darkest underwater depths where they find mighty champions of the gods imprisoned. Ooh, it yeah. sounds interesting. Yep. And you've been uh, checking out some interviews and previews? Yeah. Um, there's been a, a fair bit, and, and it's sort of interesting because uh, a lot of it brings in Chris Perkins, but but the book was done by Matt Mercer and James Hake, mm -hmm. and and then, you know, went to D&D uh, &D for, for oversight and sort of development at various points. Right. Um, and, and Chris acknowledge, acknowledges that and, and talks about how the book's concepts evolved, how they work to make sure the monsters are useful in any game of the, or world. Cause they said, you know, initially the monsters would be very like, here's how this thing lives in the critical world role yeah. world in this place, in this way. Right. Cool. But let's make it so it can play in any world. And so yep. things like that, that, that D and D adds to the, to the mix. Um, and what I really loved about this interview, which is on comicbook.com, the one I'm particularly talking about is, uh, he is asked whether Critical Role products have a different feel from a product that's solely produced by Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really cool question. Yeah. And Perkins says, yeah, I think it does. One of the things that distinguishes it, distinguishes it is that similar to Critical Role's campaign, it shows off Matt's love for depth of character and depth of character development. In a Wizards of the Coast adventure, we do focus on character to an extent. We try to round out our villains. But in a critical role adventure, I think you expect even more depth and more interaction between characters. So a great deal of the writing of this product was focused on character development, mm -hmm. how they interact with others, how they discover things about themselves, complexities of relationships, all elements that are really common characteristics in Matt's campaign. I think they're yeah. echoed here in the adventure. Yeah. And I just thought that was really sort of interesting thing to acknowledge that who yeah. does this, you know, that'll impact the book. Yeah, well, I mean... It, it, for me, if you want to take it in a different direction, it comes back to how will a D&D movie succeed? Because, you know, Critical Role is based on characters, right? Mm -hmm. People don't watch it to see these cool rules being used for the most part, right? People don't sure. watch it to see what monsters come out. They watch it to interact with the characters. And mm -hmm. so to not highlight that in a book where the audience is mostly focused on that would be silly. And it's, and so that's why I wonder how a D and D movie will do because D and D is wonderful. D and D is a great game and it has personalities. It has characters, but they're not deep characters. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Uh, Alminster uh, is, is an incredible character. And if you pour through all the writing about him, you will find some things, but it's not like, there's a an Elminster TV show out there, right? right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, all of those things go into the marketing of it. All of those things go yeah. into the focus of it. it, it just to, to thinking on on your thought there, you know, Sherlock Holmes. It's different when you take the novels and where we are today with all of the movies, yep. all the spins that have been out there. One can really develop a number of different Sherlock Holmes, even different genders, right? But but all of those add to a tapestry of what this character is. Yeah. And a character like Drizzt for all the novels that are there doesn't have that, right? Right. Yeah. 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 And uh, so I am not surprised by it. And it's good to see 
that Chris and the folks at Wizards of the Coast recognized that. And it's sort of when we were doing the uh, when we were doing the the uh, acquisitions incorporated book, right? We knew that the audience wanted to see some of these PCs and NPCs that they've come to know and love, and it it, it just had to be a, a at least a partial focus of the book. And you said before that when we first wrote it, it was for Penny Arcade, and the idea was Penny Arcade was going to launch this book without Wizards. Yeah. And so we wrote it a particular way. And then when we heard, oh, Wizards is going to do this as an yeah. official book, we're like, oh, ooh. we yeah. would have done it a little differently yeah. if we thought, you know, Wizards was going to look at it. Ultimately, they didn't change much. So I guess they liked it too. But yeah. but it was funny that that approach was a Penny Arcade approach, very right. fan, you know, oriented, yeah. very, you know, oriented to what Acquisitions Incorporated is rather than what D&D is necessarily. Yep. And of course, the book was uh, written for the most part by uh, Matt Mercer and James Hake, uh, as well as Hannah Rose was involved in that. Uh, so, you know, good, good, good on them. We're looking forward to seeing uh, the book when it is released in a week. Uh, yeah. Next news, we have the quarter four of 2021 Roll20 report from the OR Group. The OR Group looks at play numbers on roll 20 for each quarter and the new numbers for the end of last year are out and they're pretty stable for with what we've seen you know in the last couple of years fifth edition D is over 50 percent of the games played on roll 20 at 55 percent coming in at number two is call of cthulhu at 9.3 percent so you know just about 10 percent uh Pathfinder first edition is at 3.3% and Pathfinder second edition is at 1.14% followed by uh, Warhammer at less than 1% Starfinder at less than about half a percent uh, Tormenta the game from Brazil that we've mentioned before is at 0.6% and uh, D&D 3.5 uh, <laughs> comes in at 0.8%. So, uh, and Warhammer and World of Darkness are at 0.9%. Yeah. So, third edition D&D is still right there, you know, above Starfinder and right uh, even with Warhammer and World of Darkness games. It's always interesting looking at these, but but as you said, this one's very similar to the last quarter and I don't know if it was because of that or not, but usually the or group/roll20 will say a few things about you know, how they interpret this. And this time they just said, kind of, here are the results. Yep. <laughs> and I wonder if, if it was, you know, it could be anything, it could be lack of time, but it somewhat could be like, I don't know what to say about this that we haven't said before, but right. because, because it is that kind of a result where it's okay, this sort of continued. And I think the only story here continues to be maybe, you know, that we haven't talked about before. It's just that, you know, Pathfinder edged a little bit further towards sort of first edition being bigger than second, the gap wide and a small amount. Mm -hmm. And that's of course not good news for, for Pathfinder. Um, I, I know a lot of people say that, that they're on fantasy grounds is sort of their bigger place to play second edition, but, but still roll 20 should be perfectly. This is the kind of game yeah. you'd expect would shine there. And so it is a little. Yep. Yeah, and, and as we get more news, it seems like World 20 has been putting out more news, getting a little bit more public with the, the changes that they're coming out with and, and you know how things are working there. So you know that might help us interpret these numbers a little more as we get more news out of World 20. Yeah. Yeah, and at some point maybe we'll we'll learn more from the purchasing side, which would be an, another interesting piece because it's one thing what do people play, another what do people buy. Yeah. So maybe that they start sharing more of that. Yep. Speaking of buying. Oh, quite a Kickstarter. Uh, so novelist Brandon Sanderson. Uh, what, what did you do during the pandemic, Teo? So, you know, <laughs> I survived. Brandon Sanderson wrote four books. Uh, and then rather than go through a publisher, he decided to self-publish via Kickstarter. And how did that go? Well, within the first couple hours, he had $7.5 million dollars. Uh, a few days later, it was the biggest Kickstarter ever. Uh, it's currently at over $25 million with still 24 days to go. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that this Kickstarter will probably be successful for uh, Mr. Sanderson. Yeah, I think it'll fund. I, I think, <laughs> I think uh, that probably he 
in the long run will have made more money going this route than publishing through any publisher. Uh, yeah, it seems very likely. Um, and there are a lot of really interesting things that are being discussed about this. And there have been other novelists who've, who've tried to sort of say, hey, you know, here's what this means. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, you know, because it's obviously it's this kind of thing. We see this in the, in the RPG space, too, where when one does really well, right, mm -hmm. like an avatar or something like that. Right. People want to maybe pick it apart or or say, well, why aren't other people doing this? And and so, you know, it it, it bears looking at what is it mm -hmm. that allowed for this, right? Right. And and there are a couple of things. One is that just at the if you disregard the amount of money that we're talking about, I'm just talking about four books coming out. Right. Surprise, four books. Uh we often forget the opportunity cost companies, individuals take on when they go to conventions. Because one of the things Brandon says in his video is, you know, normally I'm busy. I'm going to all these different functions because they pay, right? That's right. a way that people of, of, in his area of the hobby will earn money is by going and making appearances and it's good money. Yeah. Uh, but when you can't do that, well, what do you do? You just sit at home and, and have to either watch TV or, or do something and, you know, be productive. And that's what he did. And boy, look at the millions of dollars worth of productivity that came out. Yeah. And this is something that the pandemic has also forced people in the RPG space to to do is just to say like, hey, if I'm not going to a booth on a convention floor, maybe I'm better off. You know, am I? And it's worth wondering about that, right? Yeah, and that that's why these large changes uh, in in lifestyle and in uh, you know the the paradigm of of the industry when they change, it's obviously terrible for so many people, but it can be really revelatory, as you say, and change the way businesses work, change the way industries work. And it will be yeah. interesting to see if we get uh, other novelists trying to follow up. Now, obviously, Brandon Sanderson is one of the biggest names, if not the biggest name yeah. in fantasy novel publication, right? He finished the Wheel of Time series, which launched him into uh, superstardom after being a very good writer to, to begin with, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you and I can't just publish, write four novels right. and go on and get a $25 million Kickstarter in a week. Uh, but it is of note to people who do have a name in the industry in, in fiction writing that maybe it's there for them as well. Yeah. And it's clear that he, he laid down the the you know the the path that he needed to go on to reach this is something that he has worked on right it didn't just magically happen he has launched other kickstarters he has established a reputation for delivering quality pieces so when he says you know hey you're getting my four books spread out across the quarters of the year and you're going to get these swag bag mystery boxes mm -hmm. people aren't just like ho hum they're like oh we've seen what you've done in the past mm -hmm. this is going to be great i want this Right. And I know you'll deliver. And, and so with that reputation, all of it adds together, right? But but it's worth, you know, you mentioned his massive fame and readership. And, and you know, his books sell millions of copies. Mm -hmm. And there's 100,000 backers on this Kickstarter, right? So mm -hmm. potentially he could reach millions of people to back. He's reached hundreds of thousands. And because he's smart about how he's put together the Kickstarter, that translates to millions of dollars. But it could even be bigger, right? You only get a fraction of your audience to any one of these things, right? Um, yeah. But I also, I also, if it, you know, if you don't mind me saying more, is that go ahead. the The pandemic is, has been brutal for all of us, and he acknowledges that. Um, but then, you know, he says sort of, and, and he says he he didn't even tell his family about what he'd done, right? right. The writing these four books, and. That's something I've heard a lot from a number of creators in, in the RPG industry that, that are people that I admire. They say, this was so hard. And oh, by the way, I did all these things. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes on social media, we say the first part, how hard it's been. And we don't really communicate that second part. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because we're under NDAs or things like that and we can't. Right. But, but I think that's an important thing in the hobby to, to sort of voice that perseverance, even in the face of adversity, because... Mm -hmm. A lot of people have made the most of this time, right? It's true. Yeah. For sure. And, he and might if, win the award. <laughs> right. And if you want to make the most of your time, uh, Critical Role is seeking a marketing manager. 
Uh, so we've talked about the Critical Role book that's on its way out uh, from mm -hmm. published by Wizards of the Coast, written by the Critical Role team. So Serena Marie uh, announced on Twitter that she has been promoted to product marketing manager at Critical Role, making her old position available as marketing manager. This position is responsible for maintaining Critical Role's brand voice on all digital channels, including social media, chat rooms and comments, email marketing, as well as creating effective marketing plans for Critical Role's content, products, events, and other projects. Uh, so if you are, obviously this isn't just you know a, a small scale seat of your pants deal. So you would probably need previous large scale marketing experience in the online content industry. Uh, and you have to be in LA too, which is yeah tough. And there's no salary range. This is, a, I think, the second LinkedIn job posting we've seen from Kodoko Roll that, that didn't have a salary range, which is too bad because it'd be really great if they could yeah. sort of lead the way by sharing what, what is out there. One would, one would guess it's good because they, take, they talk a lot about taking care of their employees. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, unfortunately, no salary range. Uh, and in the realm of people looking for jobs, Gen Con is seeking a software program manager to help lead development and implementation of multiple software products and workflows in support of their core business goals. Uh, it's a contra full-time contract position that reports directly to the president of Gen Con and is expected to last from one to two years. You can go to GenCon.com. Uh, to see that uh, to see that job uh, description and the compensation is listed at 50 to 100 dollars an hour yeah this is clearly you know a major job that they're offering here um, for somebody who's who's established in the tech industry and who who was you know going to really deliver on this so if you're that kind of person this would, could be a really cool merging of the tech and gaming side yep so that that and that a was long your contract. So yeah, you know. a couple of years. Uh, I don't know how many. I don't know what the current numbers are, but you know, people in the software industry who I'm familiar with change jobs every two years anyway. It's right. So you know, yeah, it's a it's a good uh, it's a good opportunity. Yeah. Speaking of good opportunities, there are free Dwarven Forge adventures out there. One written by someone that we may have heard of named Tees. What's the, what's the name? No idea. No, no idea. I, I don't know who this person is, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, can you argue with free? No, <laughs> you can't argue with free. Uh, so t tell us about these adventures, please. Yeah. So the, the latest is basically what it is, is every time that they have launched a major Kickstarter, mm -hmm. Dwarven Forge has at some point said, and if we hit this level, free adventures for everyone. And and that's what happened again with Wildlands, the, their uh, sort of forest outdoors terrain set. So the late they they've they've commissioned a number of adventures. Before I was sort of like uh, main author working with Dwarven Forge. This time they broke us up into different teams, and so we we wrote we wrote individual adventures. And so uh, the first one is Dread Druids of Dread Hollow. Nice alliteration there mm -hmm. by Ellie Alexander, who is a Dwarven Forge staff member. Really cool. I, I read this adventure. It was great. Uh, and then Tales of Woe, which I wrote. Um, so those are available now. And then there will, those are both forest encounters. Mm -hmm. And then there will be two swamp and mountain encounters that will come out later. Um, nice. You can totally run these without terrain. So it doesn't matter whether you have Dwarven Forge or not. In fact, a lot of this adventure particularly is about sort of scatter terrain. We just sort of plunk things down. So it, it doesn't require some extensive building or anything. You can just literally draw something on a piece of paper and it would work fine. Nice. Um, yeah, and it's a neat story. I came up with a very fun villain that I think uh, anyone who looks at this adventure will will enjoy. Nate Nate uh, from Dwarven Forge. And when Nate Taylor looked at it, he's like, oh, this is great. <laughs> he got really how, excited about it. How long are these adventures, roughly? Uh, they're, they're pretty short. So you could run all... Like, a, you know, there are a series of uh, four encounters and they get a little bit longer as you go. Okay. Um, and if you were to run all of them, I, my guess is, you know, maybe two sessions, two four hour sessions would cover all of it, but maybe shorter. Okay, cool. And you can find those at shop.dwarvenforge.com or click the link in our show notes. 
Uh, there's also a free Dark Sun adventure. We talked last week about uh, Athos.org putting out some material, and they have now released Tim Brown's original AD&D adventure, The Emissary. Uh, it was sketched out during the two-e days, but never completed. And so TSR allowed Athos.org to have it, and now they've uh, completed it and released it as a 3.5 adventure. It deals with the dead sorcerer King Dragoth, uh, and the kingdoms to the south of the known lands. Yeah, pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the big things that that fans of Dark Sun uh, regretted was that there was this big plan at TSR to have a enormous, you know, sort of campaign shaking, setting shaking event with Dragoth, and that never really materialized. But they did start working on this one adventure that introduced Dragoth, or you know, t- t- told us more about him, and then led you to the south and all these undead lands, and so. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of bridge, and it links to what we talked about last week, which was the setting book for those Deadlands. So this is the adventure that can help you use this. Pretty cool. Nice. Some free Dark Sun adventure for all your Dark Sun adventuring needs. Uh, finally, I wanted to thank uh, Geek Native for reaching out to give me an interview. Uh, they have a, a Patreon, and they ask their patrons each month who they want to hear from. And apparently they chose me for some strange reason. Uh, so I did an interview with Andrew Girdwood at uh, Geek Native and, you know, answered some questions. It was mostly focused on the DM skill because that's the the bent of what their, their Patreon does. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also talk about other stuff, you know, getting started in the industry, uh, you know, what I've been doing since... Uh, writing for the DMs Guild quite frequently, and so you know, thanks a lot for reaching out, and I, it was very fun to to get to talk a little bit about that. Smart patron members, yes, very smart. Either that, or they have no idea who I am and are really, really disappointed at this point. <laughs> you know, that's not true. Okay. Wait, that's Sean Merwin. We met oh, the other show. <laughs> yes, the other one. And with that little bit of nonsense out of the way, let's talk about our main topic, which continues to be updating old adventures for 5e play. So I think we're at about part four of this continuing series where we look at old adventures, uh, talk about them, talk about their, their design, talk about the sort of the differences between the older edition and this edition, and then how to update them, you know, some traps, uh, people might fall into in design or if you grab one and try Literally to run it as written and figure it away. yes very true so we are we already talked about uh the village of hamlet so you can go back a couple episodes and last episode we'd started talking about the first edition adventure pharaoh i3 uh was the code if you're keeping score at home the first in a series of adventures called the Desert of Desolation and one of Teos's favorite adventures. Oh, I just love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Love so, it, love it. It's, yeah. So what we're going to do now, we gave sort of the setup and the, the first part of the adventure. So now we're going to get into the guts of the dungeon crawl that uh, makes up the end of the adventure. And, you know, as I'm reading this, I'm like, I want to run this. I want to run yeah. this right now, and I want to drop all the other campaigns and all the other things <laughs> I'm running, and I just want to run this sort of as written yeah. and see how it goes. Um, I have long said that my dream project uh, for D&D would be to work on a, on a new version of this, right? The way they took like yeah. Tomb of Horrors and made Tomb of Annihilation. Right. I would love to do a revamp of Desert of Desolation, yeah. uh, or at least just Pharaoh, because I just love Pharaoh so much, but just... I think it's a uh, fantastic and and I love it. There's so many things that are antiquated, but then so many things that are wonderful and way ahead yeah. of their time. It's just beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this one because it does have a good dichotomy of sort of some old school stuff that was good and some old school stuff that was bad, as well as being very forward thinking uh, in terms of adventure design. So we we love to point out all of these things. To summarize what the adventure is, uh, the characters are sent off into a desert that is cursed and is growing rapidly, and they come across a ghost in the desert who tells them the story. This ghost was the pharaoh Amun-Ri, who uh, a pyramid was built as a tomb for him, but because of his 
outlooks, the, the tomb was cursed. The only way to break the curse is to have the tomb officially desecrated and raided. And so he, <laughs> he asked the adventurers to do just that. Yeah, because and, part of his part of his deal was he made it unassailable, and so that's how he was sort of punished through the curse, right? right? Is that well then only will this curse end when it actually is yeah. broken into. So after some desert encounters, you find the, the pyramid, the tomb of Amun Re, and you see that there are actual people there uh, who are workers sort of guarding the tomb and, and uh keep upkeeping it, who their whole sole mission is not to let tombs get desecrated, <laughs> uh, which can make for some interesting role playing and or combat. Uh, <laughs> and like a couple adventures of the time, there is a false tomb, which could lead the characters to think that they succeeded when they haven't even really gotten started. But once you find the teleportation device that leads you into deeper into the pyramid, uh, you end up first on the maze level. And this is where we're going to start. So I'm going to let Teos take it from here. Uh, I have a lot of fond memories of running the maze level. It's one of those things that, that's a little kind of painful because if you, if you look at this map, it's a bunch of sort of meandering, curling over each other, crossing back and forth over one another, uh, tunnels and then rooms all in between. And the map is shaded in many, many places because it's filled with mist. Mm -hmm. And so you can't see in this mist. And, and it's designed, the, the way that it's, it's crafted is such that when we played these old AD&D adventures and there was a person taking the maps, mm -hmm. this is designed to mess you up as you try to orient yourself because a lot of times the passageway that's filled with mist curves. Mm -hmm. And you don't know this, right. so your map just falls apart. Yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, there was sort of an unwritten rule of AD&D, I guess it was written, first edition AD&D, was that you didn't just plop the map down in front of the players. They actually had to map these dungeons, mm -hmm. which were often convoluted as they went. And so this map with the mist is a direct messing with that process so that the players would be confused. And it's, it's, uh, it's given in the in terms of if they try to map it, there's magic in this mist that confuses them. <laughs> so they have no idea how far they've gone. They can't count their steps. They when there are curves, they don't know there are curves. They think it's a straight passage. So you could see what would happen if you are yeah. normally playing this way, where the DM carefully describes you move up, you know, go north twenty feet west 30 feet and the person is diligently mapping and in this case their map is going to look like it was torn up and put back together at randomly uh and, and it throughout could be this fun. map there are these really fun little bits right so they'll, they'll it's it's full of labels and and the labels can just be that it's you know mist but sometimes it's like there's you know they'll they'll run into something in the mist here or there's a creature or a monster or there's uh something in a room that will indicate direction there, mm -hmm. There's great design here based on all of that way that it worked to cause both relief and frustration on the side of the players and have right. the kind of designed experience here. Yep. And the other thing to remember is that random encounters were a big part of uh, AD&D. And so the random encounters would both alleviate the, the tedium of trying to map this while at the same time causing uh, anxiety because you never know around the next corner, even if you've already been there, there could be a monster now. Uh, and it, it resolves itself in what they call turns. So, you know, when, when we think of fifth edition turn, it's the act you take Character on turn, yeah, yeah. your turn. What a turn was in first edition was 10 minutes of exploration time. So when they say in the adventure, call for a chance at a random encounter every three turns, what they're saying is every 30 minutes of game exploration, if you roll a one on a D6, you're going to have a random encounter. If you're running this as written, then 
if even if the characters try to take just a short rest, that's uh, that's six turns. So you're going to be rolling twice during just a short rest for random encounters, giving you a 33% chance total of having your short rest interrupted by a random encounter, which I want to run that. I want to, I <laughs> want to try it, it. Right. Because this really comes to a bigger discussion of differences between gameplay now and gameplay then, right? Gameplay then expected this. Gameplay then, mm-hmm. this was all just part of the, the joy, the frustration, the the game. It was just part of the game. And what it yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, and and what we have now is more of a less resource management, more narrative focus. So, you know, wandering around in this maze might be fun for ten minutes of you know, of real time. <laughs> And then you're like, I just want to get to the next combat. I just want to. And the other thing to remember, and we said this before when we talked about other adventures, is you only leveled through experience points. And experience points were only gained through killing monsters and getting their treasure. So you didn't hate random encounters because they gave you more experience points to get you up to the next level. So sometimes you want it. It's like, oh, I'm only... 500 experience points away from gaining a level. Oh, I hope we have a random encounter because then I can level up. Uh, So, you know, it's just, it's so different now that trying to run this uh, as written, you have to keep those things in mind and you have to tinker with it to make it work in a way that the rules uh, model, as well as what your players are going to want. Well, in this this kind of situation where you uh, end up in a dungeon, and I and I believe I'd have to go back and look, but I think you you can't get out. I think you're now inside of it and must finish yeah. it. And so what that means is you are now really subjected to the full rules of healing and recuperation, which take weeks to get your hit points back unless you have magical healing and if you have magical healing requires spell slots and spell slots are not like it started to be in third edition where you could swap anything into a healing spell or anything like that or or where you have now spell slots that you can decide what to use in your blah level slot as a cleric Mm -hmm. uh here you know it's whatever you memorized or prayed for if you prayed for your third level slot to be you know cure serious wounds or whatever it might be uh, then that's what you have. And if you only have one of them, you only have one of them. Right. And when you run out of it, you're dead. And so what would often happen is that you might have a, a fight that was you know, a decent fight and you took some hits and you feel good coming out of it. And then you go right into a random monster roll. Right. And now you're really hurting. And that's the point when you might think about leaving the dungeon. And when you can't leave the dungeon and yeah. you're in a maze. <laughs> so yeah. this level was... It was tough. And this this level doesn't just do that, right, Sean? It throws oh. some really interesting things yeah. at Yeah. Lots and lots of things. So uh, we have we have you know, the maze itself, plus some really interesting encounters. Uh, taking away just the random encounters, there's some uh, interesting things. Like you come across the Minotaur. Yeah, because it's a maze, so of <laughs> sure. course you have a Minotaur. Uh, there are doppelgangers who look like they may be just a random party of elves. And you can come across random people. So it's yeah. not out of the question that you would, you know, you've already come across maybe some grave robbers. You've already come across maybe a couple of priests that got lost. So why not a party of elves that are, uh, and so they then try to, I'm obviously we're spoiling things here. Uh, mm-hmm. They try to tell you exactly how to get through the maze by tricking you into wandering off sing, you know, single character with a single elf npc that's really a doppelganger now if you're so frustrated because you're lost in this maze you may be more likely to believe that oh okay is that how it works great let's do that and then bad things happen it it also bears saying that in a game without skill checks which is what this edition had um when you walk into mist where you can't see anything Mm -hmm. the doppelganger can just knife you yes and replace you yeah. And leave your body in the mists and just walk on with the party as if nothing happened. And when it's a gang of doppelgangers, they probably will pull off killing that one character and replacing one at a time. 
And then it's like literally, where did the one you know what Where did the one elf go? Well, I don't know where he went, you know. And it's your buddy right. now who's a doppelganger. And so this level was just, I mean, it was just madcap, right? And you know, there's there's tra- there's a lot of traps. Being, of course, a trap filled tomb, uh, and there are some pretty interesting <laughs> traps. Like there's one where you, all the characters could get poisoned, and by when they get poisoned, they are paralyzed. For one to 20 turns. <laughs> okay, so a turn we already decided was 10 minutes. So 20 turns would be 200 minutes. Now, if you're rolling for random monsters to show up every three turns, so every 30 minutes, you could have two characters paralyzed when the random monsters show up. Yeah. And it's it's not like you get to save every round. No, you're paralyzed for... Two three hours and that's that's it. Uh, that's, that's all. And we're rolling for random encounters <laughs> each time. Uh, there's another trap. I love this spear trap. So the spear trap goes off and it basically shoots everybody in the room. Uh, now it's not roll against your armor class. It's not make a saving throw. It's there is an eighty percent. I think it was an eighty percent <laughs> chance that you get hit by a spear. With the chance with the chance of you getting hit going down ten percent for every. Uh, point of dexterity you have above 15 i think it was <laughs> so even if you have like an 18 strength there's still about a 50 percent chance that you're going to get hit by a spear so what happens you get hit by a spear you take damage and the spear drives you across the room and sticks you to a wall <laughs> where you're taking damage every round until you can get out of this get the spear pulled out and you can't pull the spear out yourself somebody else has to and you have to have a certain number of strength points. So it is quite possible that everybody in the party gets hit. It is stuck on the wall and can't do anything. Yeah. Uh, it's quite possible that one character escapes, uh, gets missed, but they don't have enough strength to pull the spear out to free you. So, you know, all of these things are really, really deadly. Yeah. Uh, and, really and the thing definitely. is, the game was so different. So, you know, one of the things that might happen is you might have a party that is completely nailed to the wall. Yeah. And that's when you dig deep and you, everybody's looking over the character sheet and, you know, can I summon a creature? Can I, yeah. you know, what can we do to get out of this situation? And you would find something. Mm-hmm. And then you would be so careful in the next few encounters to either bypass them. And so it was, it was just a very di- different rhythm to the game, right? It yeah. seems so cruel to talk about now. And it was cruel. But it also was part of the way the game worked. And so when we when we convert this, we have to think about how to translate this. You know, do you make it a fifth edition thing, right? A spear trap that just does damage, maybe mm-hmm. with ongoing and a skill check to end it or something. Or do you try to really go into this type of play for a bit, give them a little bit of that feeling? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, it's an interesting design question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a magical ring that looks like a ring of flying, but is a ring of contrariness. And what it does is you just disagree with everybody. When somebody wants to say, go right, you want to go left. When they want to go forward, you want to go back. Uh, and it's totally I mean, role-playing. Yeah. The design of it for a maze, right? I mean, that's just right. perfect. Just so yep. good. Yep. And uh, there is a cursed sword where the first time it's used in combat, the user just attacks the nearest creature, whoever that creature might be, friend or foe, uh, and must continue attacking until the wielder is dead or the target is dead. And like only a wish, only a, a high level spell that you don't have access to right now uh, will get rid of that. So yeah, it's. Uh... I mean, it's really unbelievable. It's it's something that uh, third edition is really when this left left the game, but in third three you would still see this. Uh, where your character had become unplayable. Yeah. Right. If I fight, I will kill whatever's near me. Or you'd come up with things like, okay, you're going to, you've got to run to that far corner. We're all going to fight on this side of the room. Yep. You fight over there only. So you'll have to fight the bad guys. Yep. And then we're going to cast hold person on you when, when you start coming at us, you know, like right. you'd have to have contingencies like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, it was it was always interesting. Uh, I love these little things like this. You c- you come out of the mist and you're looking at a door, and there's a note on the door that says "Knock first. <laughs> and right, if you do, you let the monsters inside know that you're there. 
so there, you know, there's all these funny little things that uh, characters might or might not do. And I mean, that knock first thing, I I, I ripped that off uh, yeah. for um, for an, an adventure in, in a part of in the Howling Void adventure that I wrote for Adventures League. Um, you know, the kind of thing where you you, you sit there and, and players just they lose their minds trying to think of like, wait, is this really advice? Right. And we should follow it, or is it a trap? And and it's almost like the scene in Princess Bride, right, where it's right. just like like the back and forth of, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I yep. can't choose the glass before me, right? And and it's 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 even better when you make two things uh, like this, one being good for the party, one being bad for the party, because that just you know it shows that. Uh, that there is no right choice. There, there is no <laughs> logical way to figure out the best way. And you or can it also, can be, but, but well, you know, you can set it up so you might yeah. be able to figure it out, which can be rewarding. But sometimes it is fun to just have that. You know, you don't know. You must just choose and hope. Right, and uh, you can that also lever in tomb of yeah. annihilation. Right, right, and and you can also really play on player greed, player greed, not character greed. Right, mm. it's like if you have some magical effect, there's a fountain and like the first character that drinks from it gets a, gains a point of strength and, or gains a point of their you know, highest ability. And everyone's like, Ooh, Ooh. So the next time you come to, but only the first player gets it. So like yeah. the next time there's something like that, all the players are rushing to do it when it, it could be something horrible. So, you know, it's fun to play with those sorts of expectations as well. Very, very true. Let's talk about the Sphinx room because this is sort of the, <laughs> This what like one of the main rooms in the maze level, and it's one of the easiest ways to get to the next uh, section of the the pyramid. So it's uh, good to talk about. I mean, first of all, you look at this diagram that they give you, and you're trying to figure out what am I even looking at in this picture, right? Because <laughs> it has this picture of like a, uh, a, a you know, it's supposed to be a sphinx. Even that is hard to figure out. Uh, and then there's like a chute with water in it that kind of makes a U underneath the room. And then there's water pouring into that on the other side in a slope. And and even that part, you have to read everything twice and look at the picture to even figure out what that's telling you. Right. Yeah, That that's one of the things. One of the hardest things about some of these old adventures is how do we get from one level to the next? Um, and sometimes you have to read the text over three times and you still aren't quite clear if there aren't like just a stairway that shows direct uh, connections. Uh, that's one of the things I like about the maze is there's like six different ways you can get from yeah. one level to the next. So it's even if even if the characters miss two or three of them, there's a fourth or fifth or sixth that they can find. Uh, well, and then I like that, the, you know, this it tells you how dated this is in a pre-internet world. Yeah. where the Sphinx presents two riddles and they are classic riddles that by now most players totally yeah. know. And, and in this yeah. case, this one is two guards uh, in this town where one lies and one always tells the truth. But it, it sets this up about the, the, the sort of east versus west part of the town and the people in the west always lie. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to figure out whether they lie or not. And what the instructions tell you is the question to ask is, do you live here? Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you any other guidance. Like that right. is the answer. Yeah. When it's not the only <laughs> answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't explain logic, the logic behind it. Uh, it just sort of says, this is it. So unless you do a little bit more research or unless you are, someone who is you know logically inclined to a pretty good degree may have trouble with with that riddle yeah. and and there's there's another one of the ways out of this room is up to the next level one of the ways out is through another water uh chute that takes you down uh to the previous level where you came from and and the if you fall through the wrong one it says there's a trap, okay? Constitution check, where if you fail, you drown. That's it. <laughs> Done. And it's the done. constitution check is you need to roll lower than uh, 
your yeah, constitution yeah, score. Your constitution score. Well, you know, if you're lucky enough to have like a 14 or a 15, that's still a, a good chance that you are just going to straight up drown. But so, in a non-point by world, you can right. have a really bad constitution score, and yeah. the chances are you know, you're just dying. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, and you don't know a lot of these things because there are no checks, right? There's no skill checks, right? You know, a lot of times player might say like, "What's it look like?" Well, it looks like the water's moving quickly. Does it look like it could swim in it? Maybe. And then you, the whole party jumps in, and half of them die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. not only die, but they go back down to the previous yeah. level. Uh, so obviously, with four, with fifth edition and with players of fifth edition, there's sort of this expectation that you're not going to have. It's not even a save or die. It's a sort of make this weird check or die. Uh, scenario so just keep that in mind make reasonable checks for players that they would have to fail multiple checks and make pretty bad choices to uh to die straight up <laughs> and so that anything else about the maze level before we no no it's, it's okay. a lovely a classic yeah so the next level up is are the halls of the upper priesthood uh this was where when they sealed in the Pharaoh Amunri, the priests were also sealed in and they were supposed to stay here, guard the temple and live here the rest of their lives. Basically. That's the way you're rewarded. Um, And one thing that it's worth saying that some, you know, if you go to adventures earlier than this, you might have something that says halls of the upper priesthood. And then it's just room listings. Mm -hmm. And only if you really think about it, would you figure out, oh, they're all undead because the priesthood had to stay here and die with Amun Ray, so they're undead. But here it actually tells you a little bit about the story, and that's actually an advancement, yeah. right? It's something yeah. we expect in our modern adventures, but older adventures often didn't explain what, why this was or what, it, what, what this level's about, and that is actually one of the modern aspects of this adventure. Yeah. So the story is that one of the priests wanted to live longer. So he read some nasty books that told him about undeath and sure enough became undead and then turned all of the other priests undead. And they're still there guarding Mm -hmm. the the tomb, which, you know, makes sense and is, isn't a, um, isn't a bizarre story in our entertainment milieu that, that we live in. You hear, hear things like this all the time in fantasy fiction. Uh, so it's there. You want to talk about the percentile role uh, mechanic. Yeah, uh, we've mentioned yeah. this a bit, so we don't have to dwell on it, but but in a world where there weren't uh, skill checks and saving throws were very different, they were, they were sort of applied to specific things like a death ray, uh, dragon breath. They're very interesting call-outs, but it, it wasn't sort of omnipresent. Um, and, and even using the idea of like that constitution check was sort of a bit novel or non-standard. Um, a lot of it was just percentile dice. There'd just be a percent chance that something would happen. And that is a a very dated thing, right? To just say, everybody has the same. It has nothing to do with who you are. So, you know, now we tend to look at something related to the characters. When you're modernizing, you want to do, it's a skill check or it's a saving throw. Often if it's being done to you, then it's a saving throw. If you have a hand in it and you're actively avoiding it, then you're doing some sort of a skill check or attribute check. Um, but, but yeah, you'll see that design here in a lot of early adventures where it just throws in percent chances. Yeah. And it's weird because the percent chance, what I've noticed in this adventure specifically was the percent chance of something bad happening was really high. <laughs> whereas the percent chance of something good happening, like being able to understand the riddles that you need to yeah. know to get the story or to know how to move on was really low. It was like 30% chance. Uh, so you're going to want to sort of switch those around and mm-hmm. don't hide cool, fun facts and information behind these percentile or even skill checks. Just give them the, the, yeah. uh, the opportunity to, to read the writing or whatever it is that, uh, was, is hiding behind that percentage chance. Uh, yeah. Go we ahead. get a exploding grenade palm trees. Why wouldn't you want those? That, that was that was another fun thing. It's like there are these palm trees that look like they have pineapples, but if you walk under them, the pineapples fall and explode, doing damage. <laughs> Although if you catch one, 
you now have a grenade that you could throw unless you get jostled and then there's a percentage chance that it blows up while it's yeah, on so just, this person. Here, yeah. This gives you a good capture of that percentage chance nonsense we're talking about. Anyone walking within five feet of the trunk of any tree, there's a 20% chance the vibrations will loosen one of the pineapples overhead. Base 95% chance that the grenade fruit will explode when it hits the ground, doing a bunch of damage, blah, blah, blah. If you catch it, the chance of explosion is reduced to 40%. Right. It's unclear how one catches it. Uh, the grenade fruit may be picked and carried to be used later, although there is always a 10% base chance that the grenade fruit will explode whenever you fall or otherwise bump the fruit accidentally. And then there are things to read that have a 50% chance that you can read them and, you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah, that's just more of this percentage chance, uh, which is, you know, people like randomness. People seem to love their wands of wonder and their wild magic tables and so on. Uh, but it's sometimes less fun when it's not something you're doing, but when it's something happening to you, you want to be a little mm-hmm. bit more in control or have it more based on your character's abilities and skills rather than just random luck. So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, we get a lot of rooms with nothing in them. And what, you know, in in our fifth edition and older game design, that's known that's no fun, right? It's just a room with some random stuff in it. The reason those rooms are there is because by rules, it would take them a certain amount of time to search those rooms. And each time they take the time to search those rooms, you make that random monster wandering monster roll, which as we said before, could be good or bad. So either eliminate those. um, If you're going the new school adventure route, or if you want to give sort of an old school feel have them be there, make them make their perception investigation checks, and then roll right into those wandering monster tables uh, to see if anything shows up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we talked about the story. Mm-hmm. It's it's a little bit uh, flimsy at times, sort of why there are some that are alive and some that are there, but all the makings are there to make it clearer and, and stronger um, uh, you talked about here, I think that the opportunity for the dervishes to explain their mission, uh, mm-hmm. why they, you know, that they're not just from this land, but come to any land to protect sacred right. areas. Um, yeah, there's yeah. a paladin you can find in here. And this is, this is a thing that's also a trope of the area where, you know, oh, I'm a paladin and I want to join your party. And everybody goes, right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. You're a paladin. Sure. Yeah. But is sure actually enough. a paladin yeah. and does actually have some information to tell you, but yeah. you may not believe it, especially at this point in the adventure after being doppelgangered. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And the paladin will only join you if there are no evil characters in your party. Yeah. Uh, but the paladin, she also was spoken to by Amunri uh, in the desert. So, you know, she has a similar story and she can sort of share some of the background information that you might have missed if you didn't succeed on some of those 30% rolls to read the, uh, read the inscriptions. But I, I love that I, idea that you mentioned about using the undead creatures here to sort of uh, make the uh, protectors, the dervishes, more amenable to the characters being there and helping. It's not that they're desecrating it now. It's that they're trying to clear it out of something that is already desecrating it. Yeah. Um, and, that and that could, sort of, yeah, that sort of, uh, reveal is something that even modern adventures, I think don't do as well as they should mm-hmm. to, to properly think about when you come to a place, what do you think it is? What will teach you that it's something else and create this sort of, you know, fulcrum point that will allow you to see it differently and interact with it differently in a way that's really interesting and rewarding is something we, we don't, we, I think we'll continue to do better over time. Mm-hmm. So you can go then from the upper halls of the upper priesthood to the gauntlet, which is a series of traps and tests <laughs> as if you haven't had enough already. And it's also where you meet the undead priest who led the other priests here and now mm-hmm. uh, has torn his heart out and left it beating in a jar being uh, protected by a clay golem. So if you try to defeat this undead creature, it just laughs at you and says, uh, my heart's not in it. But 
And uh, so you have to find the heart to defeat this monster. And how about that mirror trap? Yeah. It, uh, so, yes, go ahead. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is something we see in, in various places, and there's even the, mid, the magic item that duplicates this. But there's a mirror trap that will duplicate the party. And the only difference between the version created and the original is that they don't know magic, so they have no spells. So the wizard duplicate, that's not much of a threat. The fighter duplicate is exactly as good as the fighter. Right. So that's the only thing that keeps this from being a, a 50-50 chance at a TPK, but as it is, is really serious and, and <laughs> quite the trap. Yep. Uh, there's also here a three-part question with mm -hmm. the first two being right out of Monty Python's Holy Grail. Yep. And that may or may not be amusing to your players. You know, my players always loved it, but you, you never know. And the longer that time goes, the less that maybe it's as amusing as it once was. Mm -hmm. Continuing on the theme of having multiple ways to get to the next level, um, you can take the normal route or you can take the route that was created when a gnome architect who uses only a spoon uh, carved a passage to get to other levels. So there's that. And I, I was reading, I was musing about how few hit points characters and monsters had and how low the damage that these creatures were doing. And I'm like, you know, it just, you know, it shows that it was just lower, lower scale uh, in terms of hit points and damage. And then the clay golem does three to 30 points of damage. <laughs> I was like, ouch. Yeah, a, a fighter's doing 1d8 plus four if they're lucky. And uh, here comes the clay golem doing three to 30. So uh, that's that's no joke there. Yeah, and, and the, the evil priest... Um... There's a reason there's that golem there. It's it's guarding a thing that keeps the priest alive, and it's right. a beating heart that's yep. in this like glass case. And until you do that, the the you can't def truly defeat the right. priest, which is just it makes the gauntlet. The gauntlet already has walls of fire, multiple yep. illusions, all sorts of things. This mirror that duplicates the party, Monty Python questions, and then in the final boss, you can't kill until you best the clay golem and smash that heart. So it is. This whole level was just something that just was super exciting, but extremely difficult. Yep. And if you make it through all of that, you can find your way to the final tomb of Amun-Ri. And it's, this is really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. There's a painting of a flying boat. And if you touch it, your hand goes through. And it's a window to a real flying boat that's like 1,000 feet, 10,000 feet above the pyramid. Uh, <laughs> And on that boat is the thing that you need to get, the Star of Mo Pelar, uh, which is vital to the storyline. You need that to complete not just this adventure, but the other adventures in the series. And then the uh, there's a sarcophagus, and inside is a mummy, the, mm -hmm. the remains of Amun-Ri, as well as the, a staff that is also needed to continue the story. And... I think Teos and I had the same thought here. It's like, all right, you know, there's this cool tomb. There's you have to find a way to get this gem off this boat that's ten thousand feet above. And if you <laughs> fall, take you know, it was a whole lot of falling damage as you land on top of the pyramid. So thousand d six, something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was it was a lot of damage. Uh, they did figure in, uh, you know, your momentum at some point has to become a constant, and then you don't take any more damage. But it was a lot. It would kill most characters. And so it's like, all right, what, what's the final battle? It's a mummy. Yeah. And it literally takes up about 12 words in the whole adventure. It's like, oh, and there's a mummy. And you actually don't even have to fight the mummy. That's the weird part. The, on top of the sarcophagus are the things that you need. So if you don't open a sarcophagus, you don't even have to fight the mummy. And so you know, I want like this big epic battle. It's like, okay, here, here's a mummy. Right. There's also this is a great thing that's so example this sort of dating. So you're on this, you know, the tomb that you reached by sort of getting to this flying boat thing. And um the statue, there's a statue in here in here that is a secret door that leads to an alcove. If you hold the star of Mopalar in your right hand and the staff in the left, which is what the statue is doing, you and whoever is touching you are able to teleport 
back to this area. And there are sometimes adventures like this where like you could literally leave half the party behind or the entire party behind yeah. because you didn't think about whether, you know, everybody could travel right. here or whatever. Yeah. And and it doesn't it doesn't there's no arcana checks. Right. right. There's a 30 percent chance of reading the writing that sort of gives you a hint about this. Right. And and even that writing, even the hint is not clear in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that in a nutshell, folks, is Pharaoh. Uh, so uh, how would we use it as a one shot? What do you think, Tess? Well, I think you have kind of two options if you just want to run this in a short focus section one is and i did this when i uh, first uh, when i converted this to fourth edition i ran the desert trek and the sunken city of pizarre that we talked about last episode Mm -hmm. and that was a really fun experience the sands the desert encounters you get the feel of this being a desert Um, you can encounter people along the way and gives you that role-playing feeling and then really make it fun to fall into the sunken city, deal with the traps, pick up lore that gives you the ideas. And then, hey, you pick up the thing at the end, which could be the Afridi or it could be something else if you just want to wrap it up nicely and not leave any loose ends or questions. Mm-hmm. Second option is start at the pyramid, mm-hmm. get a flashback of the ghost of amun Ra speaking to you yep. so you know why you're there. And then just you know zoom ahead. So do like maybe you start in the halls of upper priesthood Remove the boring repetitive levels so you're not wasting time. You know, get that undead, the gauntlet, the final room and tomb and and done, right? So just really shorten it to have that kind of sweet spot of the encounters. You you miss out on some things like the maze, but those things are long and take time. And so in yep. one shot, you just can't. Yep. And so how about if we're going to run a short campaign, like, you know, between like four to six sessions? What do you think? Uh, my director's cut version would be session one, the desert trek and the sunken city of Pizarre. Mm-hmm. Session two would be the temple and the plundered tomb. Okay. Third session being Corden's master maze, yeah. right? So that's where you, you, you need a whole session for that guy. Mm-hmm. Session four, the halls of upper priesthood. You might be able to squeeze more in here, but, but especially if you get into the role playing aspect of it with the paladin and others, you know, and then that can work. And then the fifth would be the gauntlet and the tomb of Amun Ray. Yeah, I think that it fits my uh, framework that I was thinking of when when thinking of it. So, yeah, I think that is a fine way to uh, to break that adventure up. And then, of course, you could just do it the old school way and see how that works. And it, it yep. you know it goes back to when we were doing when we were working on D and D next. Uh, part of the instructions I got working on things like halls of Undermountain and some of the uh, D&D encounter sessions was let's try to make it more old school. Let's try to get back into that sort of resource management, longer campaigns, but shorter encounters mm-hmm. that that uh, work together to tell a, a story that you don't rest every after every battle. Uh, and I, I would love to see how that works with something like this that was built that way. Uh, yeah. I would I would love to just we're gonna go and we're gonna see how this this works and you know every fight isn't going to be a half hour long knockdown drag out. Um, you know you may be fighting two rogues at fifth level mm-hmm. and and see how see how it works. Uh, I did something like that once uh, with fourth edition based on something Rob Schwab had written that was sort of inspiring the idea of taking, if you take a, what you would call a set piece encounter in fourth edition and you split it into a bunch of little ones, mm-hmm. you know, would that work and sort of, and, and I basically did that. I took a, a big encounter in terms of something that'd be super challenging in fourth edition and I spread it around a small tomb area. Mm-hmm. And it actually worked really well. It was actually very fast because, you know, the, all these things were just one or two monsters at a time. Right. Um, but because you did them back to back and you couldn't rest, then the challenge added up. And you mm-hmm. threw in some extra traps and stuff to sort of heighten it because you, it is easier when you split things up. So so you, you, have, you needed to add a little extra damage. But that was actually quite satisfying. And I think you could do something like that in 5th edition too. With a long experience like this, the hardest part is knowing how the resources are going to line up, right? Mm -hmm. How will your fifth edition characters, with their ability to dig into all those spell slots and, and, 
you know, how will that compare to things like waking you up in a, during a short rest with a wandering monster? And that, that's, yeah. that would be hard and interesting to see how it works. Yeah. Well, next time we will continue our look at old adventures. And we're not going to tell you which one we're going to do next. We're going to make it a surprise. Uh, so check in next time to see what we decide to do. And with that, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank our patrons uh, for supporting us via patreon.com slash MMP. If you aren't a patron, I would ask that you consider doing so if you have the means because it means so much to us. Teos, yeah. where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at my site, alphastream.org. From there, you can find all the places I stream or the Twitter at alphastream. Uh, this this next few weeks, I'm going to be focused on Dwarven Forge a bit, mm. uh, doing some reviews and helping people find those free adventures and things like that. So if you are interested in how to get free adventures, how to make use of those adventures, interesting about how they were created, I'll be sharing more through the blog and other forums that I enjoy being a part of awesome. <laughs> how about yeah. you sean uh you can find me on twitter at sean merwin you can follow the podcast handle at mastering dnd we're also on youtube where you can leave comments on the show there uh mastering dungeons is a misdirected mark production so Teos, now that we've braved the tomb of amonri what are we going to do now Let's pick up an awesome enchanted sword and in the very first combat slay our entire party by mistake. Oopsie! Whee!